You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and I am joined today once again by Steve Denler, theologian, musician, therapist, business owner, and more. And we are continuing the discussion that we began in the previous episode called Rethinking Sin. And in this episode, we are going to begin to rethink or reframe redemption. Now, you don't have to have listened to that previous conversation in order to dig into this one, although I do highly recommend it because Steve takes us some really creative and helpful directions when it comes to thinking about sin, especially in relational terms. And in that previous conversation, we began to look at the cross and redemption just a little bit, but we pick up at that place, essentially, in this conversation to start to think once again about God's love for us and Jesus' life, death, resurrection, what it means, and maybe some helpful ways to think about it from new angles. And so I was very blessed by this conversation, and I pray that it is a challenge and an encouragement to you as well. So friends, here we are once again with Steve. Denler for Rethinking Redemption. Well, Steve, welcome back to the Rua Space Podcast, part two. Great to see you and have you back, friend. Oh, man. Thanks for having me back. You know, as we were messaging after our last episode, it just became clear that we had gone some really good places, but we couldn't stop there. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking back to, to the time together and I really, and I even listened to it again. I'm like, man, I sound like a kid who's been in quarantine for the past year and a half and no one's been talking to him. And then finally like a friend calls and he's like, Hey, you want to talk about theology? And then I'm just like, I can't stop talking. (laughs) It was so good. It was fun. It was so good. Editing was challenging because I had to figure out all right, what exactly are we going to include and not include here. So that was that was really good. But so this is part two. We're going to continue. For those of you who are able to listen to part one, we're going to sort of pick up with a little bit of what we touched on at the end of that episode, but maybe it's been a long time for you. You're maybe listening to this months after it came out or you didn't listen to part one. Steve, can you just sort of recap for us in like 60 to 90 seconds, we had started digging into sin and you have a much more relational view of it. So could we just recap that? And then we will sort of pick up from there. Yeah. So what we were talking about in our last podcast is is this idea of sin not being a substantive thing. Um, Looking at sin more in a relational context, that sin is an inward turn away from relationship. Um, away from the very thing in which we're biologically, psychologically, or theologically wired for, that the imago Dei within us, we're made in the image of a relational God, and that life is found in relationship with one another. And so sin is, is anything that moves us out of relationship. And the important thing about this, this kind of reframing of sin within a relational context is that sin actually isn't the action. Sin is, sin is that moment that our bodies, that moment that we mistrust the other, and then it often manifests itself in action, mm. um, but not always. Um, and I think one of the important things that, that actually wasn't made clear in our last conversation was that sin does not make you bad. 
sin does not make you broken. Sin does not make you diseased. That oftentimes we think of sin as, as in a context of good and bad, that, that there's good things and then there's bad actions. And if you do something bad, then you've committed a sin. And if you've committed a sin, then you are then deemed bad. Um, and the important thing within this, looking at a context of like the spectrum of moving into relationship. So again, the spectrum of, of relationship or vulnerability and control um, or relationship or isolation, life or death, that we live in these spectrums. And if sin is in a relational spectrum, that sin is anything that moves us out of vulnerability, moves us out of relationship, it moves us out of life, um, then it's a movement that we, like any, all of our thoughts, all of our actions move us either into relationship or out of relationship. And we can also come back from that. So it's not that we become tainted by sin and then therefore broken and then therefore unwanted. Um, sin is just an everyday momentary choice in everything that we do. And I think that helps clarify, and I, we touched on this a little last time too, how Jesus can sum up everything and love God and love others, right? Because then what we often think of as sin is we like to make lists, right, of what's good and what's bad. And, and sometimes it can seem arbitrary, but in this way, it, everything is defined by, is this a turn toward or away from the other, a turn toward or away from God, a turn toward or away from yourself or toward or away from creation. Now, the ultimate act, I think, well, one of the ultimate acts of vulnerability shown was the incarnation of God not remaining in heaven, not staying in that space removed per se, but as I think Eugene Peterson translated it in the message of John 1, moves into the neighborhood, right? And when you move into a neighborhood truly, you open yourself to that neighborhood. You open yourself to the good and the difficult, the suffering and the blessing. And that's what God did. And so we began to talk a little bit about redemption last time. And you sent this quote from your paper, which I really like. And it says, the way in which we understand sin determines how we understand redemption. So take us deeper. Um, yeah, because oftentimes, like when I think of it and when we sit with this concept of sin and the ways in which most of us kind of grow up in it and like that sin makes us bad sin makes us in a sense despicable to god like we need something to stand in the way of us and god like we like the statement of um sinners in the hands of a wrathful god like we need saving from god mm. because god is holy and we cannot be in god's presence if we have sin in us as if again as if sin is some disease or something that we possess um and so with that, like growing up within that concept, like I grew up within it, it's very much within the evangelical of reign that, that that concept of sin, like the church is really good at shaming people in that framework, that you're a sinner, like you're a terrible human being, you are broken, you are bad, you are deserving of death. And, and yet when I read through scripture and when I read, Jesus and in the gospels and in the letters of like, I see a Jesus who's and a, and a God, the, a divine being constantly pursuing 
like nothing about the scripture points to a God that looks at his creation. is just like, Oh God, I can't stand you. Like, I just want to eradicate you. And you have Jesus who's constantly pointing us to our goodness. He's constantly pointing us to the Imago Dei, this divine in us, this relational aspect within us. And so depending on how we understand sin, if we see sin as, as something that makes us bad, something that makes us undesirable, something that makes us broken, something that makes us diseased, then there really isn't anything that we can do about it. It's, it's, it's in a sense that, that framework of we've we're guilty and we can do nothing to justify ourselves. And so we're sentenced to death. And the only thing that will save us is like Jesus on the cross that we then create this thing. It's like, okay, God comes and he kind of, he forgives us and, or he eradicates the sin in our lives and, and we're made, we're made holy again. I think one of the things like I grew up, I grew up being told that, if I were to stand in the presence of God, I would explode hmm. because of my sin. That God is a holy, pure, blameless being. And my sinfulness in my body, if I were to show up in God's presence right now, I would just explode because God hmm. cannot be around me. And, and we internalize that. Like words matter. And so when we internalize sin, it's like, yeah, you're, it makes you a diseased being. And, and once you're diseased, you pass on your disease to the generations after you, uh, that it does something to us. It, it leaves us kind of helpless. It leaves us like, what, okay, what do we do with this? And, and so to change the concept to our understanding of sin, not as sin makes us bad, but sin is, is our movement out of relationships. Sin is that movement away from vulnerability, which is terrifying. Sin is that movement out of relationship, which leaves us feeling safe because we remove the danger of another hurting us or disappointing us. Then we begin to see that sin, I mean, one doesn't make us bad. And then therefore we don't need something to like fix us or change us. We, we begin to see that we're invited into the process of salvation, of redemption, that, that Jesus is the whole ministry of Jesus. Jesus saying like repent, like the word repent is teshuva and teshuva means return. Mm -hmm. It's, it's this turnaround. Like Jesus's entire ministry is calling out to people being like, Hey, stop what you're doing. Turn around and come back. You are removing yourselves from the very thing that makes you alive. And, and so to change our concept from sin into this relational realm, one, we get to become a participant and we get to be, as Paul says, we get to work out our salvation. We get to continuously process out what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to return to what it means to be human? And, and God doesn't become this wrathful being who wants to destroy humanity. God gets to be, the father of the pro of the prodigal son story who's running out to us god gets to be the a being who's constantly in pursuit constantly inviting and so one of the things that that i think you summed up really well in our last conversation was was summarizing kind of this idea of sin as sin like we hold this idea that sin separates us from god and and in in 
our kind of context that we grow up in of sin being bad or sin makes us bad, then that which separates us from God is kind of our brokenness, our badness. Um, but when we put sin in the framework of relationship, then sin removes us from relationship with God because we mistrust God. We don't trust God. We, we move away from relationship with God. And so one of the, one of the aspects of that, again, that framework of like how we understand, understand sin really impacts us in what we're able to do and what we invite ourselves to do is, is this is one of the very things that I, I work with within therapy a lot that in therapy, I'll, I'll sit with a client and often it's the space, this, internalized belief within their body of just like, I'm bad. Like I'm broken. Like I'm a broken human being, uh, that if people were really to know who I was, then they would remove themselves from relationships. So that's that concept of like, yeah, I've done such bad things that, that if you see the bad things in my life, which we would say is, is sin, if you saw my sin, you would remove yourself. And so that's Mm -hmm. that concept of like, yeah, God would remove himself. Uh, from our presence, from relationship with us because of our sin. Mm-hmm. And yet the work that I do with my clients is, is that there's nothing, there's nothing that they have done that makes them unworthy of love, mm. that makes them unworthy of grace, makes them unworthy of forgiveness. And in that space of like, we have to first kind of rework that we are not broken or bad and and we can make changes and move into relationship and trust and and vice versa even with the sense and then god wants us god pursues us god loves us you know, as you brought it into the therapy context, one of the things that came to mind for me, and of course you you have a lot more training in, in therapy than I do, but one of the things that sort of makes sense to me that at least through my experience says is true is that what we've often experienced from others is what we then do or further on to others in our life, right? Um, what we think we've received is what we give often. Now, not, not always the case, but my assumption would be, and, and maybe this is, this is part of the healing process is not passing that on, but I start thinking of cycles and the ways that these things start to circle. And even, you know, we can talk about generational sin or whatnot, right? That Mm -hmm. things, how they get passed down. So if someone comes in and thinks they are unworthy of relationship, or they've been taught all their life what it means to be worthy and that they are not, I'm assuming that impacts their worldview and the way that they then relate to others. Am I correct in that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When, so uh, in psychology, there's a, a thing called uh, attachment theory, in which uh, in the first couple of years of your life, you internalize a lens by which you understand whether or not you can trust the people around you. That if, if in the first couple of years of life, uh, if your primary caregiver is really attentive to you, attentive to your cries, gets you food when you need food, uh, then, then you internalize within your being, I can, I can trust others. I can, my needs and wants matter. I can trust that I can bring my needs and wants and the other person will work with me in it. If our primary caregiver is absent, uh, doesn't, doesn't actually engage our needs all that often, all that consistently, then we begin to internalize that our cries are worthless, are pointless, and we need to fend for ourselves. And we kind of grow up with that internalized framework of, 
if, if I need something, I have to do it myself. I cannot trust others. And, and there's, there's more to it, but there's, this is a framework that again, if we put it in, in the concept and the idea of, of sin being relational mistrust, then there you have intergenerational sin. Like you, you, you're born, you experience the mistrust of the people around us. And we then internalize an idea that we cannot trust. And, and the thing with attachment theory is the, the attachment that you hold, if you hold a framework of, oh, I don't trust that my needs and wants are going to be cared for. So I'm going to be really independently driven. You aren't going to show up for your child in a very attentive way. And we often pass our same attachment to our kids. And then our kids grow up being like, oh, I need to be independently driven. I need to pick myself up by my bootstraps. Like mm-hmm. I cannot, I cannot trust. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. The, how other people impact us, how other people treat us in some sense, we then create story of like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess I shouldn't do that because I should, I guess my needs and wants are a burden uh, that I need to be able to manage this myself. And, and so we, we remove parts of our being because we're, we're seeing ourselves as the enemy to, to relationship when in reality, it's other people's control, other people's mistrust that then leads us to mistrust. And we see that in Genesis three, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, there's this sense of what started in a concept of, is God trustworthy? Is God keeping something good from us? And the start of, oh, I don't trust God. So this movement out of relationship with God, you suddenly then have Adam and Eve at each other's throats, blaming each other, hiding from each other. And what happened in that moment, like nothing, it was just the experience of mistrust then beget or begot more mistrust of others around us. Well, I see, I think that then is key. So that explanation you gave is perfect because I think this can help, you know, I think we're going to call this episode rethinking or reframing redemption. (laughs) If the other one was sin, this is going to be redemption. But the reason it starts to help us rethink or reframe redemption then is if the attachment with our primary caregiver affects all of our relationships down the line, Ultimately, so much of what we have in our life is like a microcosm or a a signpost or a picture of our relationship with God, right? I mean, this is why throughout scripture, we use the parent-child, the husband-wife, the, you know, all of these different relationships to be a signpost to our relationship to God. So if our primary attachment then, quote unquote, to God is God can't stand me because I am a sinner who has done these things, I'm disgusting, God cannot love me without blank, Mm -hmm. I have to think that is going to affect how we treat the other in terms of now you are disgusting before God because you do this. And it almost starts to give us a way of, well, at least I don't do that, right? And and doesn't that give us a way to start pushing the other way? I mean, I th- I'm trying to think, you know, in our previous conversation, part of what didn't sort of um, get into the episode because we had so much good on that sin was sort of this discussion of our divisiveness in our world, right? Especially w- with the pandemic and everything that's been happening, the way social media plays out. 
I wonder, maybe this is just me going, stretching it too far, but how much of our, of our pushing away the other of we are completely right, they are completely wrong stems from God doesn't love me. If God doesn't love me because something I've done, then it's okay for me to tell others that they're not loved or that they're not good enough or that God is not on their side. Because God's not on my side. How could God be on your side? I mean, there, there's, there's part of me that sits with that in... Yes, oftentimes we we then put on everyone like everyone is a sinner, everyone is bad. We're all we're all to be blamed, and and other ways we do consolidate it within ourselves. We yes. consolidate it and it's just like I'm mm. I'm the only one who's bad. Everyone else has it together. And yeah, it can go okay. So I can flip that way too. Yeah, and so when I when I hear you say that, it brings to mind Jesus talking about. Uh, the a Pharisee and, and, and another praying, praying right. in the temple. Right. And, and you have kind of this common person like beating his chest and like saying, God, like, forgive me. Like mm-hmm. I, like, do you have this person in a posture of, I have moved out of relationship, like accept me back. Like I recognize it, like bring back. And then you have this Pharisee who again, as we even talked about in our last time, like does all the right things. Yeah. Like does all the right actions in what it means to be a good follower of the divine and yet is far from relationship with God. And you have this Pharisee who's looking at this person who's beating his chest and being like, God, like, forgive me, a sinner, someone who's moved away. And this Pharisee looking at him and being like, thank God I'm not like that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've got it all together. It's it's, I've done it. Like, I don't need you God in a sense. And so when it comes to this space of like how, how we even view God or how we view what God thinks of us or how we then internalize even as children, like how does our parents look at us? Like everyone grows up within a different parental framework. Like some, some people have parents who are awesome and, and care for them. Well, some people grow up in really horrific households. And, and walk away with this internalized belief that I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. Mm. I'm not good. And, and the thing is, is that oftentimes I see a very stark similarity between clients that I have who have come from the most horrific family situations and how they view themselves mm. coming out of those family systems in a very stark similarity to to Christians who grow up within a faith system, believing that I'm, I'm unloved by God. Like God wants to send me to hell. I am, I'm unlovable to God. I am unworthy to God. The only way in which things are going to be right between me and God is, is through some mysterious death on the cross. Uh, it's, it's a very, actually, it's a very similar trauma experience and, and what we internalize within our bodies of who am I to God? Who am I to my parents? Who am I to God is a very similar framework. And that's why it's often really hard for people who grow up in households where their father is actually a really absent or really unhealthy model of healthy relationship to believe that, well, God loves me, but then I'm also hearing these stories of a wrathful God who wants to kill me. It's like, that mm-hmm. sounds more like 
my dad, like I can resonate with that. That makes sense to me. Mm. I can't resonate with this idea of God loving me. Yeah. And so to move to that redemption, then, you know, there are many ways to understand God's movement toward us in the incarnation and what happened on the cross and what happened in the resurrection. But it seems to me then to rethink it or to reframe it on one level is to see it as God, God's ultimate sign of you are loved, Mm -hmm. period. Like end of story, right? Like God opens God's self to the most vulnerable thing possible, suffering and Mm -hmm. dying because the system couldn't take someone where everyone's welcome at the table, right? It It didn't allow for that type of thing. And so they kill him. And that to me yeah. then is, is to, to reframe at least one way to start thinking of it is the redemption is God showing us you are welcome and I love you and I'm showing you through this just how deeply that's true. Yeah. When we, when we started talking about uh, the cross in our last conversation, you again had reframed it really well that the cross is us saying no to God and even to the point of killing him and God coming back to life and being like, I am always going to pursue. Mm. And that's really kind of how I see the cross that I see the cross about as much as I see the, the tree in the garden of Eden, like, like namely what, what happens on the cross is about the same as what happens with the tree and the eating of the fruit in Eden, which is namely like nothing that, that when Jesus dies on the cross, it's not like an EMP goes off and and the shockwave of an explosion eradicates sin from us and makes us acceptable to God. Um, but the cross reveals, like re- the cross reveals that we cannot stop God from pursuing, that God mm. pursues us even to the extent of vulnerable, vulnerable incarnation and even in the sense, like the greatest defense to relationship. So if we're wired for relationship, if we find life in relationship, the greatest affront, the greatest offense to that wiring within us is to murder the other person, to completely sever relationship without the possibility of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And that's what we as humanity do to God, or at least we think we do, that we kill God. Yeah. It's like, this final straw of, uh, of I do not trust I, and I do not want this relationship. And, and yet you have the resurrection, you have God coming back and being like, even when you try to remove relationship with me, I will always be inviting. I will always come back. And, and so that to me, in, in a sense, like this cross is again, using your language, like it's the signpost to who we are. And always have been before the cross, after the cross, from the very beginning of creation, we are invited to be in relationship with the divine, with each other, with creation, with ourselves. And the cross, once again, is this like, let's put a mirror up and show our humanity or our inhumanity in, in the murdering of another human being, like that God on the cross basically reveals even in this even when you turn away this far Mm -hmm. like there's grace there's forgiveness there's invitation there is nothing that you can do 
that will remove you from being worthy of relationship. And that's that context within the therapeutic realm when people internalize from all of the disappointment and pain that they experience, we make up stories to make sense of why is this happening? It must be me. Mm. And the therapeutic realm is the sense of like, no, there's nothing that you can do that will remove your worthiness of, of being loved. You know, what that brings up for me is it reminds me of Jesus' parable about the man who had this great debt, right? Beyond what could possibly be paid back in his lifetime, maybe multiple lifetimes. And that person is forgiven that great debt, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, what's happening right there, and I think this is what I was trying to get at a little earlier, and maybe I didn't really phrase it all that well, is what Jesus is doing in that parable is not letting him off the hook. What, am I, what I mean by that is in the worldly system, he's being let off the hook if he doesn't have to repay his debt, right? Because mm -hmm. it has to be paid somehow, right? Like I guess the guy pays it himself because he's not gonna pay the debt. What Jesus is saying is if you try to think of it in terms of worldly debt and repayment, the story isn't gonna make sense. You have to realize it's an entirely different system and what's happening here does not work in that system. So don't try and fit it in and logic your way through what's happening. He's not being let off the hook. It's he's operating in a completely different economy where it's a gift and it's grace, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that's really good news to us on one level where you said like we internalize this, right? We internalize the I'm no good, the shame, maybe other people are good, but I'm not. So on one level, it's a, we're invited to operate in a completely different way. But then for me, the step two is the guy who was forgiven didn't realize he was being invited into a new system, which is why he could then go and demand the other person pay him. He thinks he's gotten lucky, at least in my opinion, he thinks he's gotten off the hook. And now, mm -hmm. oh, that's why I can make this other person pay because they're not as lucky as I am. And then essentially he's thrown in jail because, okay, well, if you want to operate in that way, then you can go that way. So all that sort of to say, I feel like this is, this has implications on multiple levels. One being we are loved period, right? Like we are invited into a new system where it isn't, you are bad and you need to weigh the scales to see if God can forgive you. It's God invites you. But then step yeah. two is can we give what we have been given? And by that, I mean, mm -hmm. can we then operate out of a space of, yeah, that person doesn't look like me, think like me, do what I do, vote for the same party, whatever it may be, can I invite them mm -hmm. into that same space? So I, I feel like there's two dimensions there, but it all sort of starts to swirl. Yeah, and what what you're pointing out, even within that story of of a man with with debt that that cannot be repaid is your that story kind of reveals the immense grace and forgiveness that god has that that there's nothing that we can do that that would get in the way of god saying it's okay like i i choose you and and the thing with forgiveness and especially when it comes to like divine forgiveness like this internalization of like oh i'm acceptable is that it, 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 it's an invitation to be transformed. And so it's one thing to be forgiven and be like, ah, got away with it. 
and and not be transformed and changed by grace and and a whole other thing to be like i'm i'm shocked Mm. like i i do not understand why you're forgiving me but because you are like i'm like absolutely it changes who i am and and that's like it brings me to like the ephesians 2 8 verse that for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Like this is a verse that constantly gets thrown out in the sense of like, no, forgiveness is this thing that you can do nothing about. That the the framework of sin makes you bad, makes you broken, and you need something to fix you. That but looking at looking at this verse in the framework of well okay what if sin is something that we can do something about and in fact is something that we're invited to do something about something that the forgiveness of that story reveals should be changing within our lives that oh yeah an encounter with the divine the encounter with love an encounter with with a relational being that's constantly saying you are loved you are worthy you are good how does that change us then Ephesians 2.8 can be seen as, as, yeah, you've been, for by grace, you've been saved through faith, that it is, is your trust that brings you back into relationship. And actually, to go back, what's important here is to recognize that faith. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The thing, and the thing that's important here is that faith Faith in, in the Greek is pisteo, which comes from the root of pistis, which means trust. That inherent, we build evangelicalism on like salvation is in saying the sinner's prayer, believing, like having the right cognitive belief, like something, something about that suddenly makes you acceptable to God. And, and yet, when we actually look at it within context, when we look at it within the history of scripture, faith is always embodied faith is always this this embodied trust it's less cognitive it's more active um in john 14 uh jesus says that those who believe will do as i do that yeah if you believe if you trust me then you're going to be changed and you're going to do something and all throughout the the epistle of james is faith without works is dead like your trust in this new framework, your trust that you are wired for relationship is going to move you toward relationship. And so then in Ephesians 2, 8, when you have for by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's yeah, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. So your trust and movement into relationship with God brings you into relationship and it's God's grace. It's God's forgiveness. It's God's acceptance that, that brings you back to this state of this is what it means to be human. That faith moves us into relationship. Grace forgives and welcomes and pursues. But it's all an active part. It's all an act of us moving into vulnerable relationship. And so then going into the second part, and it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Should be read as this, the whole latter half of that verse is you can't do it on your own. Uh, that space of control, that space of, of pride of like, no, I've got it. Like I can, I can live the best possible life on my own, apart from relationship, apart from God. It's good. Like, look at me, look at me. And so even that no one may boast, that is a sense of pride 
that is a sense of I did it on my own. That's not vulnerable relationship. And, and so salvation, to look at salvation, to look at atonement, to look at redemption, to look at the cross as being, it's always been an invitation back, an invitation back into relationship, back into vulnerability, not out of our own doing, not out of our own self-preservation, our own control, our own pride. And like, nah, I was able to do it without God. I was able to do it without you. It's, it's. No, it's a it's an embodied trust that brings about works, that brings about change, that brings about a movement back into relationship. And so that forgiveness of that unpardonable debt debt is that should bring about change. That should bring about works, that should bring about vulnerability, it should bring about love. Which is beautiful because I think it offers both that encouragement and that challenge then. The encouragement to me, the whole idea of hey, so that you can't boast, so you can't do it on your own. If we've been told our whole life, maybe literally by your literal parents or church or your theology or whatever, that you're dirt, that you're nothing, that you can't do it, then it can seem very hard to think, well, now I need to get it all together for God to love me. So there's an encouragement Mm -hmm. there of, no, you're loved. Like you're loved, you're invited. Yes, that's it, right? But then I think there's that next step of that verse is so that no one may boast. Secondly, then let's not put bars for other people to have to cross to also come to the table, to not become the the parable you shared of the Pharisee standing close to the temple while the tax collector was far off and saying, thank you, God, I'm not like them. So it gets back to me to that double side of on the one side, we have to, you know, to realize the invitation is free, that it's, that it's given to us, that we can move toward that relationship. But then I think it also frees us to enter relationships with others that maybe you've been uncomfortable entering. Because you think, oh, well, well, they do this or they have that lifestyle. So, uh, you know what I mean? There's, there's sort of a sense of they're invited and they're loved too. And so we can be free maybe to invite others to the table. But one question I did want to ask you, I mean, unless you have something you want to go further on that. One thing is I want to pull that therapist out again, if possible. And someone listening to this may still have that sense of it's really good to hear that, but I've been Mm -hmm. beat down so far. I don't know if that can really be true for me. Is there any way, and I know obviously going into therapy where you work your story over weeks and months and years, you know, we can't solve it in five minutes, but is there maybe a truth you can speak or an insight for people to realize, no, you really are loved. It is real for you. I am absolutely an advocate of therapy. And, and so Absolutely. Like if there's, if there's a narrative of like self-deprecation or self-hatred or, or really anything, you can have any reason to go to therapy. Like I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of it. And one thing I, I, I can say is that like, even the way that you framed it, like, no, like not me, like I'm not loved. It's the stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, again, we're meaning making people and we will always seek to make sense of disappointment and pain and and the absence of relational connection because that's that hurts like 
our bodies, like all of our trauma and everything that we do, all of our protective frameworks actually point to our longing for relationship that, oh, I'm like, I'm not going to, I can't ask for help is, is a pointing towards, I want to be cared for in, in a need that I have, but I don't trust that that need will be cared for. So I can't ask for help. And, and so we tell ourselves these stories and, and a lot of this kind of stems from if we find ourselves within a context that we cannot get out of. So childhood, like look at childhood, you, 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 as a friend of mine says, you, I, when you're a kid, you don't have keys and a credit card. So you can't just be like, peace, this place isn't giving me, this place isn't meeting my needs, isn't caring for me well. So I'm going to go care for myself. Now, as, as, as children, we're in, we're in a context that we can't remove ourselves from. So we do the best that we can to survive it. And, and when disappointing things happen, when we feel hurt, our meaning making part of us tries to make sense of it in a way that we can do something about it. And so if we are hurt or we're disappointed or our needs aren't getting met, we're not going to internalize a, a, a framework of, oh yeah, my parents are really just letting me down. Like my parents aren't caring for me well. My, my parents, uh, like I am worthy of that, but I, I am not being loved well. No, we're, we're going to internalize a story that puts us in control. So again, a movement of control uh, that, you know, I didn't get that because I didn't do enough. I, I didn't get cared for the way that I wished to get cared for because my, my parents are too busy and I'm a burden. My needs are a burden. And we internalize these frameworks in order to mitigate pain, in order to mitigate disappointment, because if I can, if I can remove my need and my desire for, for care, if I can remove my need and desire for, for love, then I'm not going to be disappointed at its absence. And, and one way that I'll say it is that oftentimes we sacrifice relationship for proximity that mm. we, we will do everything in our power to remove tension and conflict because we feel that tension and conflict will push people away by removing our wants, our needs, uh, our hopes, our opinions, our preferences. Hey, what do you want to eat for dinner tonight? Oh, I don't care. Whatever you want. Cause I'm afraid that if I offer something and we do it, you're going to resent me for picking a food that you don't want to eat. Uh, we remove conflict, but we also remove ourselves in the process. And so now we have proximity with the people that we're around, but we don't actually have relationship with them. This relationship in which they hold our wants and needs and we hold their wants and needs and we learn how to exist in the same space oh, together. Oh, and how we teach people to do that with God. I feel like that's a whole nother conversation, but yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. good. Yeah, uh, man, to, to have conversations around, yeah, what do we make up about God and how does that impact who we are and how does that, how does that change how we show up in this world? Like, like, again, back this, the conversation of like, so what is salvation? Like, what are we being saved from? And, and are, are we a participant in that or not? That all of this, this changes how we see ourselves in this movement of the church that, and, and even if we bring it to the concept of the church, like the story of acts here is a, a group of people who have figured it out. This group of people who are just like, Oh, like we, we are to love one another. 
We are to be a community of grace and forgiveness and acceptance. And the thing about the church is that it's supposed to be the space that invites people into a radically different experience of relationship. That when you have people come in being like, I'm not worthy or I'm not worth love or I can't trust you to suddenly be in, to suddenly encounter a group of people who radically love, who radically say, no, you are absolutely worth uh, love and and getting your needs and wants cared for like oh you don't have a shirt on your back like let me give you one like jesus saying uh not everyone who says lord lord uh will experience the kingdom of heaven and again the kingdom of heaven is at hand it's like only those who do the will of my father it's that sense of your belief isn't going to save you uh, your, but your, your trust and that movement into relationship, that's what saves because that's what invites you into life. And that's what brings transformation. And that's, that's that sense of like, here's a radical community who embodies that trust, that awareness of like life is found in relationship and, and invites people into this experience of like, your needs are, your needs matter. Your wants and needs matter. And, and we are here to love you and care for you. So good. I think that there's some really good questions then in what we've been talking about, and especially in, in that last space there for, I would encourage people not to walk away then from this conversation without asking questions of mm -hmm. what does this mean for me in my, you know, in my own relationship with God and others? What does this mean for the church to really start rethinking if I see it in this relational dynamic, how do we invite others well? How am, mm -hmm. how am I invited well? How, you know, am I loved and love? You know, sort of those, mm -hmm. those two sides of the same coin. But Steve, yeah. I, I would continue talking about this stuff with you forever, friend, but let's leave people, if we can, with a final word again of, of challenge or encouragement, a, a sort of summary, mm -hmm. something to... Uh, continue on this journey with? Yeah, I, I would say that I hope that this conversation or kind of wrestling with, okay, if sin, sin is relational mistrust and, and then this concept of, okay, so then what does that mean for salvation? What does that mean for atonement that, oh, it's not that I'm broken or bad or diseased and need a cure from, but it's this awareness. Again, Genesis three, their eyes were open to mistrust and the possibility of harm and how the cross opens us up to this realization of like, Oh wait, actually we've been doing it all wrong. That life is found in relationship. Again, it's the signpost. It's this movement towards, I would hope that this conversation or these questions or even just being curious about this gives us in a sense, uh, hope that we can do something hmm. that it's not that we're existing in this life, waiting for the next that, no, I'm a sinner and I've said the right prayer and life is still really terrible. And I'm hopeful that when it ends, I get to experience life. Like, no, Jesus's whole ministry is about life is found here. I have come so that you may experience life and life to its fullest now. And so to, I, I'd hope that this wrestling of just no salvation, you get to be a participant that when I talk with my clients who come in and are really just beat down and, and see themselves as broken and bad and not good. There's a hopelessness there. There's a hopelessness that there's nothing that can happen. 
short of a flip switching or some magic pill that suddenly changes who I am, like there's nothing I can do. And that's, that's that concept of sin is making us bad. There's nothing we can do so that that concept of sin leads to a hopelessness, but, uh, to see sin as relational, to see sin as, as not something that makes you bad, but it's just the everyday momentary choices into or away from relationship. God invites us into this participation of like, you can choose to come back as a prodigal son who completely just ruined our lives. God is always there saying like, you can come back, which is our participation in salvation, mm-hmm. our movement, our doing, our, our choice to like, no, like I am worthy. I am worthy of love and a God who consistently and constantly affirms that you are worthy of love. And there's nothing that you can do. You can even try to kill me and I will come back and say, Hey, I I still love you. And I'm still here. (laughs) What a beautiful invitation, Steve. It has been an honor and a joy. Once again, thank you so much for the time. I will once again, link to your website in the description below. If people would like to go deeper with you, let's, uh, you should get a book out on this and we'll have you back to talk about it again, because I think the world needs more of that. So thank you again for your time, brother. It's, it's been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me back. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before we go, I just want to say thanks again for joining us in this conversation with Steve Denler. As we mentioned last week, I do encourage you to go check out his website at the links below, as well as the Rua Space memberships on Patreon and our Christian Yoga memberships, guided practices as well. So two different links if you're looking for ways to go deeper in your relationship with God and make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Until next time, friends, grace and peace be with you.